0: They gave me some advice from an old farmer. I didn't realize they were old farmers, but I thought that some of these might be helpful for you at some point uh, in your your week. So let me read some advice from an old farmer. Your fences need to be horse-high, pig-tight, and bull-strong. Always drink upstream from the herd. (laughs) Keep skunks and bankers at a distance. Life is simpler when you plow around the stump. A bumblebee is considerably faster than a John Deere tractor. (laughs) I guess if you're trying to outrun them. Do not corner something that you know is meaner than you. It doesn't take a very big person to carry a grudge. Every path has a few puddles. Some of the puddles, as a farmer, you don't want to... Step in Which takes us to the next one When you wallow with the pigs Expect to get dirty Uh, Don't interfere with something That ain't bothering you none If you find yourself in a hole The first thing to do Is stop digging That's a good one Letting the cat out of the bag Is a whole lot easier Than putting it back in Are there cats on farms? In the barns Yeah Okay, if you think you're getting, if, if you get, sorry, this is written in farmerese. If you get to thinking you're a person of some influence, try ordering somebody else's dog around. <laughs> we have a dog like that in our neighborhood. The biggest troublemaker you'll probably ever have to deal with watches you from the mirror every morning. Live a good, honorable life, Then, when you get older and think back, you'll enjoy it a second time. Live simply, love generously, care deeply, speak kindly, leave the rest to God. And here's a good one. Having good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of that comes from having bad judgment. (laughs) Well, as Dr. Toussaint used to say, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. So, for real, let's turn to Mark chapter 11 and continue in this great gospel. You know we're in the passion week, but we are nowhere near the end. We've still got four or five chapters here, at least four chapters in Mark, which takes a while to get through. I don't know if you've noticed as you've gone through the gospels in your life or if you have read through what they call a, a harmony of the gospels, which is where they they arrange all the gospels together sort of in uh, side by side so you can see what Matthew says and what Mark says and what Luke and John sort of at the same time. And when you do that, one of the benefits of it is finding where the Passion Week begins. And when you do that, you see that it takes about a third of all of the Gospels is related to the Passion Week. It's, a, it's the week that changed the world because it is so uh, so important because of what Jesus did in that week. And all of Mark has led up to this moment, which is the Passion Week. It would take quite a while to review the whole book, obviously, but if you just think back through it with me, it's helpful to review where we've been so far in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus appeared on the scene from the very beginning, uh, sharing that that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he basically said, you know, the kingdom of God, the long-awaited promised kingdom that the Old Testament looked forward to, it's at hand, it's near. The potential for it beginning is very close. And he proved that he indeed was the one that could inaugurate that kingdom by performing miracles. And the miracles that he performed were things that had never been done before. Opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead, uh, people who were lame beginning to walk, those who had leprosy, an incurable disease, all of a sudden by his mere touch they're healed. And so what Jesus does is give a a preview of what the kingdom is going to look like. That by him healing people, he shows the kingdom that I promise, this is what it's going to look like in that kingdom. I can deliver on the promise. Unfortunately, the religious leaders looked at Jesus' miracles not as from the power of the Holy Spirit, but as from the power of Satan. And Jesus, realizing this, begins to change his emphasis from offering the kingdom to Israel now to preparing these 12 unknowing disciples for an age called the church. God's plan B, which was really plan A all along, what the Apostle Paul calls a mystery. And in that time of training those disciples, which, by the way, he's also training us, Primarily those chapters were in Mark chapter 8 through 10, where three times in those three chapters, he introduces his death, his burial, and his resurrection to these disciples. Every time they reject it, and instead they opt for the kingdom or for some, some aspect of the kingdom, particularly their own greatness. So Jesus is trying to teach these men that the, the way up is down, that the way to be great is to be a servant, is to be like Jesus Christ. And they then they enter Jerusalem. Well, last time we were together with uh, the Gospel of Mark a couple of weeks ago, we started here in chapter 11 at the triumphal entry. And you remember, Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, enters the temple. It just says he looks around, verse 11, and left. And then on the next day, Monday, he enters on his way to the city, he sees a fig tree in leaf, and it doesn't have any figs, and so he curses it. In fact, he says, may nobody ever eat fruit from you again. And then he goes into the temple, cleanses the temple. On the way out, it's noticed that the the next day, it's noticed that the fig tree is withered, and his disciples comment on that. And then Jesus goes into this application about having faith in God and what that looks like. But basically, what we talked about was the cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree sort of sandwiched Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And Jesus was basically going into Jerusalem and saying, just as the temple was destroyed the first time, it will be destroyed now a second time because Jerusalem rejected God's way. And he does, he's not content just to let the application be to Israel. But he turns it to the disciples, and then ultimately, by the power of the Spirit, he turned it toward us there at the end, uh, verses 23 through 26, where he talks about forgiving other people, praying in faith, and believing that God can do all things. So with that as a context, and remembering that he has just taught his disciples about forgiveness, about faith and prayer, now we get chapter 11, verse 27. Once again, they come into Jerusalem. So let's look at this together. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? You know, a popular uh, phrase, a popular saying or notion is that, isn't it strange how on Palm Sunday when all the people were shouting, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that only a few days later the people were shouting, crucify him. Well, the answer to that seemingly dilemma is it's really not the same crowd. The crowd that was on Palm Sunday Road was a different crowd that was up at dark 30 on the morning the Pontius Pilate condemned Jesus. But I mention that to say we're talking about two different crowds, but here in verse 27 we're talking about a group of people that we are going to see again, and it is the exact same group. Notice Mark says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now look for a second at chapter 15, verse 1, and see if you don't hear a little deja vu. Chapter 15, verse 1, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, meaning the whole Sanhedrin, immediately held a consultation, etc., and they go on to condemn Jesus. So don't forget who these people are that Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to these religious leaders who will, the same group, in a matter of days, literally three days later, are going to condemn Jesus to death. They come to Jesus, and notice they approach him as he's walking in the temple. And they began to say to him this question, By what authority are you doing these things? Well, what are the these things? Well, this is why it's helpful to review. Remember, Jesus came in just the day before and cleansed the temple. Not only did he cleanse the temple, but he began to say some very harsh things to the religious leaders. He says, um, back in verse 17... My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. That's the, these things that they're asking about. Who gave you the authority to come in here and start knocking over tables and telling us our business? By what authority are you doing these things? The issue here is authority. Authority. And really, the question, the implication from their question is that we're the ones in authority here. We never gave you authority to do this. Who gave you authority to do this? Or like someone would says to those of us, you know, who start getting bossy, who died and made you king? Of course, with Jesus, <laughs> he did. <laughs> so, who gave you the authority? Well, Jesus answers their question with a question. Verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now once again, the issue is authority. First time they were asking Jesus' authority. Jesus, where do you get the authority to do what you're doing? Jesus spends that and says, let's first talk about John's authority. Where did John's authority come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Now keep your finger here in Mark 11 and look back at chapter 1. And let's look at what chapter 1 says. Chapter 1, let's start in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Notice a couple of times it's mentioned, the heavens. And the question Jesus asked was, John's authority, did it come from heaven or from men? And when we turn back and look at the context of John's authority, it uh, it came from heaven. There is the voice of God the Father amening John's ministry, particularly as it relates to Jesus Christ. I looked at a couple of the other Gospels, because Mark often is pretty abbreviated, and the Gospel of John says that John the Baptist came from God. John just flat out says it. And the Gospel of Luke says that the Word of God came to John. So when Jesus asked the question, where did John get his authority, we, Christians, know the answer to that. And the people uh, we're going to see obviously knew the answer to that. But now turn back to Mark 12, uh, Mark 11, and let's look at this because Jesus puts them in a pickle. He knew the religious leaders had rejected John. And he knew that they had rejected him as well. So Jesus' question puts them in a pickle. And let's let's look at this pickle. Let's pull it out of the jar and look at it. Verse 31. So you, they begin reasoning among themselves. So you can see they kind of say, well, give us just a minute. And they kind of crawl off to the side. And they say, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? And notice... In this rendering, anyway, it's just an M dash. There's just a dash. But shall we say, from men? And that's all they say. Because uh, Mark goes on to say, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. We read back in verse 18 that they did not seize Jesus because they were afraid of the people. Once again, we see that happening. Shall we say, from men? They were afraid of the people. Fear. Fear of man is what drove them. Public opinion is what led them. It's so interesting when you see public leaders that lead by following, that they look at the polls to decide how they should lead, as opposed to leading and doing what's right and letting the polls fall where they may. The religious leaders didn't do that. Public opinion is what drove their decisions. I saw a study, I think it was James Dobson that did the study, Um, that seems to ring true. But he did a study in which he wanted to decide how children responded to sort of peer pressure. And they put several children in a room and they had somebody up at the blackboard that drew a really short line. And then right under it do drew an obviously much longer line and numbered the short line one and the long line two. And then they put sort of a, a, a plant, a, a person who was not going to answer honestly, but intentionally, it, they put a plant among the children who was going to say that the long line was short. And so the, the answer, the answer was, which one is the short line? The first one or the second one? And I forget. Which one it was, but anyway, the plant answered wrong and did it immediately and boldly. How many think this is the short line? The plant raises his hand. Well, and the other kids just kind of look, and one by one, they each sort of raise their hand. And they did this several times, and the, the more times they did it, the more, till finally they were all absolutely convinced that that was the case. Well, you know, it's easy, I guess, in some sense to do that with children, but the reality is we're like that a lot, aren't we? We so want to have uh, people affirm us, so much so that we are willing sometimes to compromise what we know is right, or to sort of close our eyes to it, or to get to the point to where you say, well, who knows? You know, who knows? And where you begin to convince yourself that maybe right is wrong and wrong is right. The religious leaders said this question, if we say from men, and then that's all they say. In other words, they they could say, if we really say what we believe, that is from men, because they didn't believe he was from God, from heaven. John the Baptist didn't get his authority from heaven because that would make Jesus the Messiah. But if we say what we really think, we fear the people. And so they decide to evade the issue altogether. Verse 33, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love Jesus' answer because Jesus says, doesn't say, well, then I don't know either. Jesus says, then neither will I tell you. Notice the word Neither. In other words, he's saying, it's not that you don't know, it's that you're not saying. So neither will I tell you. You're not telling me, I'm not going to tell you. Their answer was a dodge. We don't know, it was a lie. But Jesus knew what they really thought. It's a good moment to pause and ask ourselves the source of authority. The source of authority. F. F. Bruce makes the comment on this verse that's worth considering. He says, There are some people who will demand authority for truth itself, forgetting that truth is the highest authority. This began very early on in the human race with our parents in the Garden of Eden. When Satan came in and asked the question, did God really say dot dot dot? And you know, that still works today. Because if you can get somebody to doubt the sincerity of the Bible, then it's just your opinion versus mine. There is no authority if there is not an ultimate authority. The Bible has proven itself over and over and over through the centuries to be a a book of truth, and a book that cannot have simply just be written by people. There is a number of great arguments for why we know that the Bible is the Word of God. Some arguments are outside the Bible itself. You don't even have to look at the Scripture. And logic points to the fact that it's true. But then when you look to the Scripture itself, there's so much in it that verifies it, especially the fulfillment of prophecy. You can't make guesses about the future and all of a sudden it comes true every single time and it not be a book that's true. But we cloud the issue. Maybe it's really not true. Maybe it was just written by men. And as a result, authority is compromised. And we see this in spades in our culture today, don't we? It's getting worse. It's getting worse. You probably saw this week where uh, overseas, was it Ireland now that's voted that uh, life no longer is in the womb? that life doesn't begin in the womb. A long-standing tradition or or law has now been overturned. And seeing people celebrate over that is is just, um, it's tragic, it's probably a good word. Some people will demand authority for truth itself, forgetting that the truth is the highest authority. Well, Jesus had told them, neither will I tell you, the source of my authority. Uh, what he means is, I'm not going to flat out come and tell you, but I will tell you a story. And that's what he does now in chapter 12. Without telling them, he tells them. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them, so notice, same context, same audience, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower And rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, let's pause for just a second before we read the whole parable and remind ourselves that parables, we haven't heard that word back since chapter 4 when Jesus began to speak in parables. And remember why he began to speak in parables. He was shifting his emphasis from just outright speaking the truth to sort of hiding it behind stories. Because those who weren't really interested in hearing the truth wouldn't hear it. And those who were interested would hear the meaning behind the meaning and would still be taught. Not only that, but Jesus goes back, and I hope that your Bible has in some way indicated that verse 1, most of verse 1, is a quote from the Old Testament. If you look at the margin, or perhaps uh, like if you have the New American Standard, mine's in all caps which indicates that it's quoting an Old Testament verse, and the verse it's quoting is Isaiah chapter 5. So keep your finger here in Mark 12 and turn back with me to Isaiah 5, because we need to understand the context of what Jesus is implying by quoting this verse. Jesus knew the Bible really well, and so, you know, why not use it? (laughs) Why not use it to his benefit? And it's wonderful, too, because by simply quoting a couple of verses, there's a whole implication given that isn't necessarily said. Isaiah chapter 5, let's read starting right in verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it, To produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah. His delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed; for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So that's the context. In the time anticipating the destruction of the first temple, Isaiah speaks for God and compares Israel to a vineyard that God worked to produce it. And I love the the the. The words that it says, God did all he could to make it fruitful. He even removed the rocks. If you've ever been to Israel, there are rocks everywhere. That is one place I would not want the job of being the rock remover. I mean, there are rocks everywhere. And so to, make, to remove the rocks, is it is in itself a picture of what hard work God did with Israel to prepare them to be fruitful. And notice, it, in verse 2, it says he expected it to bear fruit. That's important to notice. That the Lord would do all these things, and yet Israel would bear no fruit. And as a result, he says he's going to remove a couple of things. First of all, he's going to remove its protection. He's going to take away the wall that surrounds it, and he's going to let, uh, the, by implication, the critters get in and, and infestate it. Uh, He's also going to take away its provision. There'll be no rain. So he takes away the protection. He takes away its provision. And as a result, he lets the natural unfolding of the consequences occur. Remember, Jesus used a similar, you can go back to Mark now, Mark chapter 12. Jesus used a very similar picture just the day before with the fig tree, didn't he? He went to it expecting to find fruit, but there was none. As a result, he cursed it, and he said, no one's going to eat fruit from you again. It's the same thing Isaiah said. It's the same idea. And it's ironic that Isaiah, again, is predicting the destruction of the first temple, and Jesus said what he said regarding the fig tree, quoting Jeremiah and the destruction at Shiloh, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, anticipating the destruction of the second temple. So Jesus is quoting the Old Testament implying that the destruction of the temple that they're standing in is going to happen as well. Well, we just got to verse 1 in this parable. Let's continue because you're going to see the exact same thing occurring as Jesus goes on. So verse 2, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard." Now when you're reading a parable, you don't want to try to make it walk on all fours when you're interpreting it. Uh, Typically a parable has one big meaning that's a takeaway. Now sometimes you can compare some of the details and actually make one-to-one relationships, but typically a parable, you don't want to try to assign a meaning to every little detail of a parable because that isn't what a parable is used for. Typically, it's to communicate one big truth. But occasionally, there are some details that are clearly there. And I think they're there to give us insight into the big truth. And that's the case with this parable. Notice it said he has, in verse six, he had one more to send, a beloved son. Now, I didn't make a big deal of it when we read it in chapter one, but this isn't the first time we've heard that, that word, beloved son. And Mark. Who said beloved son before this point? God, the Father, at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, here's a bonus. What's the other time in the Gospel of Mark that we've heard that phrase, beloved son? At Jesus' what? Transfiguration. Transfiguration, right. And once again, who said it? God the Father. So we have God the Father at his baptism saying, this is my beloved Son. God the Father at his transfiguration saying, this is my beloved Son. And now we have Jesus in this parable saying that the owner, or literally in the Greek, the Lord of the vineyard says, I will send my beloved Son. Well, who is he referring to? Clearly Jesus is saying, me. So when you, once you get that anchor in the parable, then the rest of the meaning of the parable begins to make, make sense. If verse six is referring to Jesus as the beloved son, who was not respected, as we know what's going to happen, he is the heir of the vineyard of Israel. He he was killed uh, and rejected, then those prior to Jesus we know would be the prophets. Particularly, I don't know which one we could try to assign, but the context we've talked about, John the Baptist, one of these others is John the Baptist. And especially when you talk about the context of beloved son, because John was there at that time when that phrase was used. So rejecting Christ has its implications. Look at verse 9. Jesus gives a conclusion. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Rejecting Jesus results in what we've already talked about, the loss of protection, like Isaiah said, the loss of provision, like Isaiah said, but also the loss of life, here Jesus tells them, and the privilege of participation. That generation of Israel lost the privilege of ushering in the kingdom of God. It's going to be still a future generation that's waiting on the kingdom of God to come. In fact, Jesus says they will be destroyed, which is probably a reference to the destruction of the temple again in AD 70. And then Jesus once again quotes scripture, and I love how he introduces it here in verse 10. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus tells us it's scripture, but we would know that anyway, because hopefully, again, in your Bible, it indicates somehow that it is. And it's a reference to Psalm 118. Now, I mentioned just a second ago, in verse 9, Jesus asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And that word for owner in Greek is kurios, Now, it depends on the context how you're going to translate kurios. It could mean Lord, like with a little l, like master or owner in the context of the vineyard. But when verse 11 talks about it came about from the Lord and it uses the same word again, now you understand once again Jesus is making a connection to the parable. Who is the Lord, the owner of the vineyard, who's going to come in and destroy? It's it's God. It's God. Jesus continues to quote from Psalm 118. And uh, you may know this, but during Passion Week, or not Passion Week, but during Passover, which is actually the next week, there are psalms that are sung traditionally every year. Psalm 113 to 118. You know when it says when they left the upper room they sang a hymn? They probably sang from these psalms. Psalm 113 to 118. These are the psalms that were typically sung during Passover. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118 when he asks them, have you not even read the scripture? So it's like double insulting. He's talking to people who are experts in the scripture, asking them, have you never read the scripture? And he's asking them at a time when everybody in the city is singing these verses at Passover. It's sort of like at Christmas time asking a pastor if he's ever heard the Christmas story. It's like, you've got to be kidding. We're experts in the Christmas story. And yet Jesus says, have you not even read this scripture? And then he quotes the stone which the builders rejected. Now, I know I'm really pulling out your Baptist roots, asking you to keep turning place to place, but that's okay. It's good for you. Turn to Psalm 118. Keep your finger in Mark 12. We'll be back. But look at Psalm 118, and let's look at the context of what Jesus is quoting. Psalm 118, look at verse 19. Have you never read the scripture, Jesus asked, which also implies, don't you remember the context of this scripture? Psalm 118, starting verse 19, says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. Now remember, keep the Passion Week, keep Palm Sunday, keep the context of Jesus entering Jerusalem because that's what's occurring prophetically. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And the rest is great, too, but that's the emphasis that I want, I want you to look at. I, I when you look at those verses, can you just not see the Passion Week leaping out all over the place in these verses? Jesus entering the gates, verse 19 and following. The rejection of Jesus, verse 22. Uh, ultimately, the, the resurrection is implied as well, as we'll talk about in just a second. Verse 25 is Palm Sunday with, with O Lord, do save. The word there in Hebrew is hoshiana, we get hosanna from it. And then, of course, verse 27, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar is clearly a prophecy of Jesus being bound to the cross. So Jesus is pointing to a context that looked forward to the ultimate final Passover in which the important stone is rejected, the stone. I don't know if you have in your margin there for verse 22 several New Testament passages. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Look at your margin. I have Matthew 21, Mark 12, uh, Luke 20, Acts chapter 4, Ephesians 2.20, 1 Peter 2.7. You see the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit have used verse 22 over and over and over to show Jesus, the one who was rejected, has become, in fact, the most important one. And they quote that verse to show that it's happened. Jesus quotes this verse now. Okay, you can go back to Mark. And it's freighted with meaning. The stone which the builders rejected is the beloved son of the parable who was killed and thrown out. It was the rejected stone that became the chief cornerstone. One time it was rejected. Later, it's made prominent. One time, it's rejected and, then, and humiliated, and then again, it's later vindicated. Let me ask you a question that gives direct application to this passage. Because what's true of Jesus is true of you and me. Have you been in a context in which you are, because you have stood for what's right, been rejected? Unlike the Pharisees who fear men, fear people, and go with the flow of the crowd rather than saying, you know what, this is what we think. Have you stood strong like Christ did and actually spoke the truth? And it backfired on you? By backfiring meaning people didn't like it? Are you waiting for some kind of a vindication? Well, you may have to wait for what Jesus waited for. Jesus ultimately was vindicated at his resurrection. And that may be what you're waiting for, too. You may go your whole life without anybody knowing the truth of what happened. But one day, one day, there will be vindication The stone which the builders rejected, that's the present state. That's the present place of rejection. This became the chief cornerstone. That's a future vindication. And notice, this came about from the Lord. Ponder that for just a minute. That the Lord would have such a sovereign working over your life to allow you to be rejected. To allow you to be hurt. To be placed in a place where you would not have chosen that. And yet, God allowed it. Why? Because there's going to come a point at some time, maybe your resurrection, maybe in this lifetime, we don't know, when it's going to turn. And the rejection turns to vindication for you. And you realize it came about from the Lord And then the end of verse 11 becomes the truth that you marvel at. It is marvelous in our eyes. There will come a day when the thing that you loathed because you did what was right is going to turn. And you're going to see that it becomes marvelous. It becomes marvelous. Only God is able to bring that about. Only God. Let's look for a moment at how Peter uses this verse. A number of places in the margin use the verse, but Peter uses it. And remember, Peter is present. Remember, just prior to this, Peter is among those disciples. Uh, back in verse 21, you know, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And then in response to that, Jesus talks about praying in faith and forgiving We know the apostles have been locking horns with each other about who's the greatest. That's all still part of the context. Now, look how Peter uses these verses. Keep your finger in, Mark, and turn to Acts chapter 4. This is after the resurrection, after Peter goes, oh yeah, and gets it. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 8 And he's talking to the same people who ultimately took Christ's life. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man was made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter quotes the very verse that Jesus quoted weeks earlier when Jesus stood in the temple and said to the very people whom Peter ultimately quotes these verse too as well. What's amazing is you have this change in Peter, because uh, in Mark 12 we're going to see a little further on in the book of, in the book of Mark how Peter turned tail and ran with the rest of the apostles, and now he's standing toe to toe with the very people that killed Jesus and saying, "You put him to death, but God raised him to life." Now Peter has a great confidence because of the resurrection. But the reason that I point this out here is in verse 10 where he says, you crucified whom God raised from the dead. It was the resurrection that vindicated Jesus as being the son of God that he said that he was. It was the resurrection. All right, one more spot, and then we'll go back to Mark for good. Look at First Peter chapter 2. We saw how Peter used it in Acts four. Look how he used it in First Peter chapter two. First Peter two verse twenty one. Uh, let's see. That's not right. Two seven. That's good. Actually, back up. Look at two six. He says, For this is contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So Jesus, we're told, was the one who was rejected. In that same context, look down a few verses later at verse 23. And boy, this has application for your life written all over it. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But here's what Jesus did kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now again, we're coming back to that situation in which you haven't been treated well, or there's something unjust. What do you do? What do you do when nobody knows the truth? You do what Jesus did. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself To him who judges righteously, knowing that one day he'd be vindicated. And the same is true of you. In chapter 4 of this same book, verse 19, Peter gives one more application that's relevant. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. There's that phrase again. trusting their souls, just like Jesus did. All right, back to Mark, and we won't do any more flipping around. Look at the conclusion. All of the implication of what Jesus has said, and the conflict that he had with them at the end of chapter 11, and the parable that he told of them now here in chapter 12. Look at the conclusion now in verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, understanding that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. They wanted to get rid of him because he told the truth. He told the truth. Years ago, my dad and uncle and I uh, went to see a movie. It was a uh, Sylvester Stallone movie. I won't tell you which one it was because it's not a good movie. It's not one I'd recommend, I'd say, but... But the point of it is still good. We went to see this movie, and this was back when I was still young enough that my dad would buy my tickets. Uh, Toward the end of his life, I bought his tickets. But we were there, and um, we got there in plenty of time to to see the movie. Got there plenty early, bought our tickets, went in, but it was already playing. Oh, great. So we go and we sit down and we watch. Sylvester Stallone comes around the corner with his gun, shoots the bad guy, And then the credits roll. We weren't in there five minutes to realize that we had come in to watch the end of the movie. And it was one of those twist endings to where it's like, it would have been great to not have seen this. But then you realize, wait a minute, it's great to have seen this. Because now, as we stayed and watched the whole movie again, we knew how it was going to end. Exactly how it was going to end. And so the challenge then became, or the entertainment then became not... Is he going to make it? We know he's going to make it. We've seen the end. The entertaining part of it is, how is it going to work out? Because so many times it got to where you know it looked like it was an impossible situation. But we knew the end. Nope, nobody's worrying. My dad and my uncle and I, this is going to work out just fine. And it did. It was the same ending once again. I've never forgot that. And mostly I've never forgot it because... If you want to peek ahead to Revelation chapter 22, you know the end. We do. We win. And Christ has already shown us that we win because of the resurrection. The resurrection vindicated Jesus, and my friend, that's a premonition, a a pre-truth of your resurrection and your vindication. Whatever it is you're struggling with right now, whatever it is that's in your life that isn't right, one day, one day, It will be made right. And all of the tension that you feel will be completely resolved. You will have, as Jesus quoted, it came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the Bible, for our authority, that we are not left here on our own to wander around and take a vote of what's right and wrong. But we have before us the eternal and living word of God that gives us insight not only into the truth out there, but the truth in our hearts that we are desperately in need of a Savior, one who died on the cross for our sins, and by simple faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us, all of our sins can be forgiven. Thank you for the resurrection that vindicated him that gives us an insight into the resurrection one day that will vindicate us as well. So with trust and gratitude, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.